All right, we are back. As promised at the top of the show, we're going to take a little uh, detour into some very interesting political material, starting with the fact that JFK Facts, courtesy of Jefferson Morley, a person we've had on this show three times and whose website we recommend to you highly, has put out the following this morning. Exclusive. Justice Department seeks dismissal of JFK Records lawsuit. In the subheadline, Morley says, Court brief argues Biden has discretion to hide as many assassination files as the CIA wants. And here's the text. The Biden administration responded Monday to a lawsuit brought by the nonprofit Mary Farrell Foundation charging President Biden and the National Archives with failure to implement the 1992 JFK Assassination Records Act. The 30-page brief, signed by Deputy Assistant Attorney General Brian Boynton, seeks to dismiss the foundation's lawsuit on the grounds the president has discretion to implement the JFK Records Act without regard for the original intent of Congress, which passed the law unanimously in October of 1992. The motion was filed the 9th Federal District Court in San Francisco, Judge Richard Seaboard presiding. Now, we have spoken in the past with the person who was responsible for filing that lawsuit, Attorney Bill Simpich, and luckily for you, dear listener, we have Bill ready to speak with us right now about this very topic. I'm pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Bill Simpich. I'm glad to be here. So tell me where, where this stands from your perspective. I think this is finally the day of reckoning in some key ways because we've been waiting for this fight for a long time. So where it takes us is we have an opportunity to tell the Justice Department and everybody else that, you know, our history belongs to us. It's really as simple as that. And they can't be the mediators of that uh, in a situation like this where the Congress has passed a law. They've got to reckon with Congress. They don't have to reckon with me. They've got to reckon with Congress's power as a co-equal uh, actor in government, including on national security. Well, the piece notes that your civil complaint filed in October charged Biden and the archives that they failed to, quote, comply with their mandatory non-discretionary duties to ensure full and timely disclosure of all assassination records as required by the JFK Records Act, end quote. Right. And uh, declassification is, the, you know, basically, you know, where my politics begin, because uh, when you're not given the people of this country... Uh, its own heritage, what do you got? We should backtrack, I think, 30 years to the, the Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. It caused a uh, quite a stink, I think it's fair to say, in the U.S., because at the end of the movie, they simply showed that there was a huge number of records related to the president's murder, which had been sequestered away and would remain so for decades. Congress set out to change that with the Records Review Act. That's right. And uh, everybody was upset because they're going to be withheld till 2029. Well, these folks, you know, in some cases want to hold back some of these documents beyond that date. It's taking the law on its face and turning it upside down. Well, as we talked about previously, uh, in 2017, Donald Trump had the opportunity to just stand back and let this happen. Instead, he stepped in and kicked the ball down the court and then kicked it again, kicked it into Biden's uh, jurisdiction, and now it looks as though Joe Biden doesn't seem to want to uh, comply either. No, they love uh, the power to classify or declassify at will. It's how they control the narrative, whether you're Trump or whether you're Biden. It's always the same. The power to, to classify is the power to uh, turn the American people into children. 
It's the power to make people run off into conspiracy wonderland because they don't know what to make of, the, of what they've got. Now, we also note that last October, four members of Congress called on President Biden to release all the remaining documents. This included at least one Republican, Democrat Steve Cohn of Tennessee, Republican Tim Burchett of Tennessee, and Democrats Jamie Raskin of Maryland and Anna Eshoo here from California. So Congress is trying to put some pressure on here, too. Yeah, and it's the job of the boomers in particular. We're the only ones left. <laughs> you know, our, our, our older brothers and sisters, are, our parents are largely dead at this point. Mm. And uh, so we're the ones who really retain the knowledge of what happened and have lived with it our whole lives. Our younger friends haven't had that privilege. And I'm here to tell you, kids, it's no fun. It's really the boomer's job, uh, and we'll take help from others to end this nonsense. Get these last records out, do the research to get more records out, and uh, put the puzzle pieces together. So we have the best picture that we can get of what happened. It seems, Bill, that uh, certain so-called authorities keep coming forward to say, look, there's not going to, there, there's no going to be no smoking guns in this. You know, this is ridiculous. That may be true. I mean, after all, they have had many decades to to clean out the attic uh, of things that might really upset people. Nevertheless, I understand 44 records are being withheld in their entirety right now, related to some stuff that we'd like to know about. Sure, there's the fella who named Joe Anides, who was the one who was basically the gatekeeper uh, in the 70s when Congress took a look at this, and uh, he prevented a lot of documents from going into play, and lo and behold, a lot of them revolve around him. What a coincidence. And uh, his uh, actions with the anti-Castro Cubans who were uh, eyeing and fingering Oswald during the summer and autumn of 1963. This particular group of exiles and Joe Anides have to be looked at the most seriously because their fingerprints are closer to Oswald than virtually anybody else. Well, Jefferson Morley himself, who we've been you know, pleased to have on this show on three occasions, sued the CIA uh, for this. In particular, he was interested in these records related to George Joannides and uh, how that might have played into the whole Oswald story. He was not successful. No, he spent 14 years and got a handful of documents and they stonewalled him from getting the rest. The chief of the Records Review Board, who looked at all this in the 90s, said on more than one occasion, all these 44 records should be released right now. There's no reason to hold back any bit of it. And he feels that way about the rest of the records that are in the collection already as well. Now, I do note that uh, these 44 records, we're talking about Joannides and how Joannides had a direct role to play in the anti-Castro Cubans who... Oswald found himself mixed up with, which is which is quite a story. The summary here is that the CIA's pre-assassination interest in Lee Harvey Oswald seems to be something they're especially keen to keep from us. Let's talk about that. Well, yeah, they held back for decades, uh, the, the CIA did, their central role in uh, monitoring Oswald uh, during the, the alleged trip to Mexico City, where uh, Oswald, or somebody calling himself Oswald, uh, did his best to travel to Cuba and to the Soviet Union, and uh, he couldn't get a visa, uh, as it turned out, and so he wasn't able to go. And it was a big scene at these embassies uh, with him really carrying on. Nobody, it was unforgettable. Everybody at the embassies remembered it. The Warren Commission got uh, the only the most faint, stilted version of it. If they'd gotten the whole version of it, people at the CIA would have been fired. Their families would have been disgraced. It would have been uh, possibly domestic upheaval in the United States. And that is probably why 
uh, the Warren Commission wasn't given the information. But this is the kind of tragedy that uh, this case has been involved in from the very beginning. They, people don't want us to know the story. They don't want us to now have the heritage of that story and any attempt to resolve it further. Bill, I'd like to take about five or ten minutes and to go into some of the details of this particular issue. We're, we have been talking to John Newman, the author of, a, of a, a very good book titled Oswald and the CIA. Mr. Newman was a military intelligence figure who was able to come to the case and solve a lot of pu- uh, puzzles that people just had no idea that, like, you know, he would say, look at the routing slip of these files to look at who was looking at the data. That that itself tells you a lot. John opened a tremendous number of doors to this. He's, I, I know from talking to you, preparatory to this, that he's hard at work right now on this very topic. You say he's working backwards. He's, he's starting back in 1959 when Oswald defected to the Soviet Union. Apparently, there's some sort of counterintelligence operation surrounding him involving no less than James Angleton, the director of counterintelligence at the CIA. Newman's working backwards, coming forward. He has not yet returned to Oswald in, in Mexico City. Is that, have, I, have I summarized this correctly? That's correct. Uh, but it does appear, from my study of Mexico City, I wrote a whole book on it, based personally on John's work, some of my own, that uh, Oswald was replicating the same path he used in 1959 when he went to the Soviet Union. He used what's called an instant visa. Instead of having to wait a couple weeks to get into the Soviet Union, he found a little route in Helsinki that had just magically opened up based on an agreement between the two consuls on either side that allowed you to get with, uh, into the Soviet Union within 24 hours of your arrival at Helsinki. Unheard of, impossible anywhere else. Here's a 20-year-old kid who just had his 20th birthday uh, traveling through this little-known route. And he tried the same thing in Mexico City four years later, just six weeks before the assassination, with the same basic idea in mind. I, I want to go to Cuba. I want to go to Soviet Union again, a second time. He's already considered one of the most uh, important uh, Americans to intelligence uh, in the Soviet sphere because he's one of the few Americans who's come back from being a defector and with a Soviet wife. In fact, they were more concerned about his wife than they were about him. So uh, look at this guy going to Mexico City. It caused a big paper trail. And that paper trail is exactly what the CIA hid from the Warren Commission. Well, the CIA, with a straight face, told the Warren Commission back in the, t- in, in the day, you know, it's a darn shame. We, I guess we probably should have paid better attention to this guy, but, you know, he just, he just slipped through the cracks. <laughs> we know since then, with all the data that's come out, that that is just a huge lie. It is ridiculous. They've been following him very closely. And it certainly appears that he was an agent of the U.S. government. It also appears that he was impersonated, at least on the telephone, according to both people who believe Oswald acted alone and believe that Oswald had compatriots or didn't do it at all. Because the phone story, without getting into the whole Michigas, is so convoluted that even J. Edgar Hoover turned to LBJ the day after the assassination. He goes, well, it looks like we had, there was two guys down in Mexico City trying to do the same thing. Hoover was very shook about this Oswald story. Even back in 1960, he was afraid people were impersonating them, and he put that in writing, and we have. Right. While, while Oswald was in the Soviet Union, somebody using the name Oswald was running around the U.S., and that got no less than J. Edgar Hoover's attention. That, that's, that's interesting. It's a real fascinating story how this 
uh, Oswald character was basically, uh, uh, you know, a place for pocket litter to be distributed, so to speak, in the files, uh, and just popped in and out like Zelig. It was a remarkable story. And it was because he was a defector of the Soviet Union. People felt that he was a traitor and that, and that he could be used for whatever purposes the intelligence community or even their friends saw fit. Let's just do a little detail about this incident that took place in Mexico City that uh, that outraged Hoover. And I, I tell people, if you want to look at the JFK case and find some evidence of the fact that you were told the truth, start, number one, with the fact that while Oswald is in custody in Dallas, he's alive, he presumably, presumably is going to go to trial, and they ask... The FBI asked the CIA what you got on this guy, and they said, well, we do have some recent stuff that just popped up about him visiting Mexico City. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, we, we taped him talking to the embassies, and we have some pictures of him. Okay. Well, well, let's take a look at those. Well, there's a problem because the tapes have disappeared. <laughs> but, but, but more importantly, at the time, FBI agents listened to it, it, people who were familiar with the man they had in custody, and they said, it's not the same guy. Which is huge. Right. And how do you get past that? Lone nut people have a terrible, terrible time with this evidence. They'll do anything rather than talk about it. Yes. And, and it, is, it is quite clear that based on what we now know, and it took years to extract this data. Yeah, it wasn't easy. The people down in Mexico, they had, you know, it's an intelligence age. You've got to have smart people. All nations have to have intelligence uh, agencies to... To operate. That's just that's just the reality of the modern world, or the, even the ancient world. Right, and wiretaps, which you know, instead of having just informants, now you've got telephone informants, so to speak, on a wiretap. And now, of course, we can do it with computers. And we know from these translators that the man that they were taping, who was saying very inflammatory things like, "Hi, my name's Lee Oswald, L E E O S W." Yeah, I was just speaking to the guy in the embassy, and it's like they know. That it's not Oswald because the man, he spoke Russian very poorly, but could speak Spanish. Oswald could speak Russian, could not speak Spanish. The thing that's so inflammatory about these conversations of an imposter is that they're alluding to the fact that the man in Mexico visited the Russian embassy and spoke with a KGB agent who apparently, rumor has it, was in charge of assassinations in the Western Hemisphere. So when Oswald is the accused assassin, just six weeks later from these events, all of a sudden it's like, oh, you were talking to the KGB? Uh, um, okay, well, that makes it look like Russia and or, or Castro or both are behind this, meaning World War III is a threat. Yeah, and six months after this whole event is over, you know, in the FBI files pops an informant who says, oh, I was talking to this person and that person, and Castro said that he got it from his people that, the Oswald character came in and said, I'm going to kill Kennedy. And the FBI gets this information April 64. They didn't give it to the Warren Commission or anybody else. They just sat on it. Why? Because it was inflammatory. Again, it could have started World War III. True or false? I think it was false. I think it was dummied up. But they didn't want that information out there. They did not want any kind of hot issue arising in the Kennedy case. Well, it is a fact that uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, who headed the third branch of the U.S. government, had no intention of signing onto um, a committee put together by the president to look into Kennedy's death. He just said, no, I'm sorry, that's not appropriate. And Johnson laid it out to him from like, look, 
this is we're talking about World War III here. We're talking about 40 million dead Americans because he's talking about the fact that there's a Russian connection and or Cuban connection. And at that point, Warren caved and said, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, the LBJ liked to laugh about it and said, yeah, Warren did it with tears in his eyes. It's probably true. Warren left out the tears part but told the same story later. Yeah, that's why I did it. That's why I did it. And people don't like it in this country don't like to think about the notion that 40 million people could have died because of the Kennedy killing. Well, Peter Dale Scott, a man that we, we're both familiar with, Bill, and we both, I know, respect very much, has postulated that um, this whole setup in Mexico City had had two phases to it. The first was to lay a very incriminating but false trail pointing at the communist governments and then offering a choice after that of like, here's the deal. Either it's the communists and we have World War III or he was a lone nut acting by himself and that's all there is to the story. What do you think they were going to go with? That's it. That's the easy way out. And I guess that's where we still stand. It is. Nothing's changed in that regard. What has changed is we have a universe of documents that we didn't have 30 years ago. Thanks to Oliver Stone, the man who changed history for the better. Yes. Well, I know this is a, an unfair question, but how do you, how do you handicap what you think the, the, the courts are going to do in, in, in regarding to this effort to dismiss the lawsuit? Oh, I think they're going to do the right thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm a raging optimist. That's all I can say. And when we send out our brief, we'll send out a little press release, but we're going to let the documents we file with the court tell our side of the story. And is there anything you would like we baby boomers and others to do? I would like it very much if all of us put our shoulders to the wheel and whatever way we can push to end this declassification monster in the United States. It's destroying our politics. You can see by the nonsense around Biden and Trump and Pence, they all do it. They leak stories when they want to, and uh, they hide behind their closed doors and get the story told they want to tell. They classify documents at will when they don't want us to know something. They've got the power to turn the lights on and off. It's got to end. Whether you're on the left, right, or center, we can agree on this one. Well, I'd like you to come back real soon, as soon as there's any break in this, to, to update us. I'll be glad to. I know Peter Dale Scott has agreed to come speak with us, and, and, and I don't know when John Newman will make, finally make an appearance on Radio Parallax. Uh, to hear, to hear you telling, uh, to outline what he's doing, it may be a while, but I'm sure it'll be worth a wait. Yes, he's working on his MLK book now, and it's very close to being done. And he's done a lot of great work, and he's not going to stop. He's looking at both the JFK and the MLK cases just as closely as you can imagine. Both he and I and others are going to speak at the JFK conference in Memphis around the assassinations of the 60s. That'll be in mid-April, and when John speaks there, I think for the first time we'll all have a real clear idea about where his MLK research is doing, but I can tell you it's going to be powerful. All right. Well, I, I guess I'd better start making travel plans. I hope to see you there. I'm really looking forward to it. We'll talk about that, too, I hope, in April or May. Uh, I hope so. That would be great. All right, Bill. Always a pleasure. Keep up the good work, and we'll talk uh, soon. Look forward. Thank you. All right, that was our friend Bill Simpich, activist attorney. We're looking forward to speaking to him again. Now, let's do some science, uh, or at least a little bit of it, science slash medicine. And 
this case, we're going to, again, go to New Scientist. This is their December 31st of last year's issue. Article titled, Melatonin Mystery. The piece said that millions of people take melatonin supplements to aid sleep, to treat jet lag, and to cope with night shifts. But the question is, do they really help? I remember when melatonin was really being pushed back in the 1990s, and I spoke with the producer of uh, Dean Adele's radio program, and she told me that Dr. Adele was sort of amazed that people were snapping up melatonin, a brain hormone, to help them sleep. He was skeptical that it worked. Apparently so is New Scientist, to quote from the magazine. So does melatonin help you sleep at all? Well, that depends on who you are and how much extra sleep you're hoping for. The truth is, says the magazine, for most adults, melatonin supplements will buy extra minutes of sleep, not hours. Hardly the stuff of dreams. A 2013 meta-analysis of nearly 1,700 participants found that compared with a placebo, melatonin decreased sleep latency, that's how long it takes you to fall asleep, by seven minutes. (laughs) Total sleep time increased by a whopping eight minutes. So anyway, it probably works, but it's not a big dramatic effect and that's echoed also by the evaluation in the medical letter which took a look on the very first issue this year january 9th 2023 the medical letter is put out by a non-profit organization which tries to give people um data on various drugs out there uh, data that's not contaminated by you know the manufacturer's information and slant This is what the good people at the Yale Medical Letter had to say about melatonin. Endogenous melatonin regulates the sleep-wake cycle and other circadian rhythms. Synthesis and release of melatonin is stimulated by darkness and by the suppression of light. And I will pause at this moment to resist going off on a tangent about light pollution. Although you know damn well I'll get back to it at some point. But continuing with the article, secretion of melatonin generally begins after sundown peaks between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. and decreases gradually thereafter. Over-the-counter products containing melatonin are widely used for sleep aids in children and adults. Taken two to five hours before the desired time of sleep, melatonin has been effective in some patients with sleep-onset insomnia. But large, randomized, well-controlled trials demonstrating its efficacy for treatment are lacking. Clinical trials of melatonin are limited by the heterogeneity in formulations, meaning they're so varied, the dosages, and the timing. The optimal dosage and timing of administration of melatonin for treatment of insomnia are unclear. Melatonin products in the U.S. are considered dietary supplements. They've not been approved by the FDA for any indication. As with all dietary supplements, the potency and purity of melatonin products can vary. It's noted that uh, adverse effects of melatonin include next-day drowsiness and increased enuresis, meaning bedwetting, headache, dizziness, diarrhea, and rash. Ouch. Short-term use of melatonin appears to be safe. They say the safety of long-term use for treatment of insomnia is unknown. Now, the medical letter is, is not, uh, you know, is not infallible. Mr. McMillan uh, swears by his use of melatonin, finds it useful. Except for the diarrhea and bedwetting. Yeah, except for that part. Well, I tried it on occasion. I wasn't convinced it was doing a lot for me. I did not have any diarrhea or bedwetting, I'm happy to report. Yeah, thanks for that sound effect. But as I recall, the medical letter was quite skeptical about the efficacy of kava kava uh, many years ago when they took a look at it. In fact, I, I'm stunned as I, as I pick up this, this piece again and take a look at it that they didn't even mention kava kava. Wait, wait, let me, let me look more carefully here. Hold on. Oh, wow, here it is. Under herbal products, it says there's no convincing evidence that any of the other, quote, natural remedies used for insomnia, such as kava, 
or lavender are effective or safe for this indication and the purity and optimal dosages of all these products are unknown. Now they're probably right about the fact that there's a wide variety of, uh, of concoctions out there that contain kava kava, but I'm here to tell you ladies and gentlemen, it is an effective sleep aid. And I would note that if you don't believe me on that, you should consider, you should just consider, I'm not saying you go do this, but you might want to consider visiting a kava bar sometime. I first learned about kava from an anesthesiologist friend who went to Vanuatu, which is reputedly where the world's best kava comes from. And being the diplomat that he's noted for being, <laughs> upon being offered a ceremonial cup of kava upon arriving there, he drank it and said, I'm not impressed by this which prompted one of the local authorities to say, oh, well, why don't we give him a batch of the king's kava? To make a long story short, he found out, oh, yes, yes, it does work. An opinion which I can echo. When a kava bar opened in Davis some years back, we went and spoke with the proprietor about, uh, about uh, uh, their various formulations. It was a very interesting uh, discussion. If you would like to hear it, having missed it the first time, I refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com. Now, the effect of this uh, herbal root can be, can be fairly subtle. And when people down a kava drink and find that it did not, you know, do what they expected, they, they sometimes insult the product, which prompted the local kava bar to have some stronger strength preparations, shall we say, one of which was called the punch in the face. After ingesting a round of that, well, most people became convinced that it does in fact work. Now, a couple of weeks ago in the program, we recommend that you go out and check out the night sky to see if you can find the comet, which is currently making its first visit to Earth in 50,000 years. A couple of nights ago, it was passing right by the star Capella. Uh, that was a cloudy night, so I wasn't able to see it superimposed upon that very distinctive star. But the next night, it was supposed to be moved a little bit to the right, and I got out the binox and took a look, and doggone it, I couldn't find it. It's not a very bright comet. But I'm going to try again. Supposedly it's going to have a rendezvous with Mars in a couple of days. So if you have any idea where, where to find Mars, go out and have a gander yourself. We mentioned Bob Berman in the last segment, and I'm holding, having, again, dismantled last year's Old Farmer's Almanac, the piece by Bob Berman about the North Star. Noted Berman, it's the most famous star in the heavens, and the most useful for sure. Nothing else in the heavens generates as much confusion, however, as Polaris, the North Star. Berman says, go ahead, ask your friends, what makes the North Star so special? Most will say it's brightness. Some will shrug. Odds are none will give you the right answer. Which is, it's the only object in the sky that doesn't appear to move. And that is astounding. Said Berman, make no mistake, its brightness is notable. Of the 6,000 or so stars which are visible to the naked human eye, it ranks a respectable 45th in brightness. It is bright enough to appear in polluted city skies on every clear night. It's visible to 88% of the Earth's humans. But it's not its brilliance that catches your eye. It's a second magnitude star. Medium. It's, it's about the equivalent of one of those stars in Orion's belt, or the ones that form the Big Dipper. But it just so happens its position above planet Earth is right above our pole, meaning that as we spin on our axis, watching the moon rise in the east and set in the west, and along with everything else as a general rule, Polaris's motion is just a tiny little circle in the sky, something like one degree across. It's not really very noticeable. It's pretty accurate when it comes to finding north. If you try to use a compass to do the same thing, you're going to be off here in California by like something like 17 degrees. 
If you're in Massachusetts, it'll be off by 17 degrees the other way. But good old Polaris is always going to be within one degree of true north. It's a pretty cool thing. And sadly, for those who live on planet Earth below our equator, alas, there is no southern pole star. And final item for today's program, we have located the spokesperson locally. This is in Mill Valley of the Asteroid Institute, formerly known as the B612 Society. And we're going to see if we can't bring her on this program to talk about the very worthy effort to find the near-Earth asteroids that might be a hazard to planet Earth to see if we can't do something about moving them, nudging them, so they don't smack into us. And if I don't close this off shortly, I'm going to get smacked by Mr. McMillan, who produced this program, as he does all of them. So let's get out. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.